what people see about Christ. Second, the solution to this divisiveness and to all the related sins that we'll see like gossip and disloyalty and quarrelsomeness and so on, the solution to that is the gospel. That if you in your marriage or in your family or at work, if you want to see unity and happiness and camaraderie, then you need the gospel. I've heard a pastor say, if you have a fighting church in the wrong way, you need 30 sermons on the gospel. That's the solution. We need Christ. <clears throat> so as you get in this, I want you to be able to listen to this with, am I willing to evaluate my sin in this area? Are you willing to evaluate your sin in this area in light of the reality that your behavior in relationship to other people either is telling a truth or a lie about Christ? And are you willing to look at what Christ has done for you and apply it so that, as Pastor Jeff said, the war that's within you, the internal corrupt desires, are you willing to address those things? Let's read uh, these four verses. I appeal to you, brothers... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, all of you, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, by Chloe's household, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I'm going to stop there. We'll get to the rest of it. I think verses 14 and 17 fit better with 18 to 31, so I'm going to include that in next week's sermon. Uh, But we'll stop there. Let's pray, and I'll try to explain this. God, you are the blessed and only sovereign. You, had get, you have given us your unfailing, true, and eternal word. God, we long to know your word. We want to be consumed with longing for it. And we know that that can't happen apart from your spirit. So God, give us an eager longing for your word now. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You see in verse 10 that Paul begins with an appeal. Some of you have heard the word exhort, kind of an old Christian word. That's this word here. Paul is exhorting them. He's strongly urging, appealing to them. This is an emotional thing. This is like a, can you please listen here? What is going on in this church is painting him. And Paul's exhortation is based on the two great Christian realities. Look at this. I appeal to you, brothers. He's appealing to them based on our common relationship as a family in Christ. That's what we are, right? We are brothers. Now, you'll notice in the Bible, it typically refers to all of Christians, whether they be male or female, in the term brother. Uh, That isn't to slight your sex as a woman. That's because in Christ, who is a boy, who is masculine, we are all brothers. We are all, in a sense, uh, united to God, Father, in Christ. So we're all brothers. We're all one. So he appeals to them based on the family relationship we have, and then he appeals to them based on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Another way to say, Paul couldn't appeal to anything more weighty here. This is important. All right? All right. Sometimes you do this with your kids. Please, for the love of everything, 
right? This really matters to Paul. This is big. He appeals to them based on our family relationship and on Christ. So this, this is big. Now, Paul states what he wants to happen first positively, then negatively, and then doubly positive. So Paul appeals first positively that you all agree. Now, that word literally there means that you all speak the same thing. This is Paul wants them to be so united in Christ, so united in purpose of glorifying God, that in the internal unity comes out in, in, in agreement in speech, which you know is very uh, unique, isn't it? To be of such one mind with some people. Now, this isn't meaning that you finish each other's sentences sort of thing. Um, this is just that you're so united that we in the church say the same thing. We, we agree even in what we're saying. Uh, which is strange, that, that, but that's the kind of thing he wants. It's, it's very unique. And then he says it negatively, that there be no divisions among you, and then twice positively, that you be united in the same mind, united in the same judgment. Now, that, that there be no divisions, just look at how comprehensive this is. He appeals to all. Right? This applies to every one of you. Doesn't exclude anybody. All of us need to hear this. And uh, that we not only all do it, but there to be no divisions. None. Now, again, we will see later on in the Corinthian church in chapter 5, Paul tells them to divide from somebody. And so there is a right conflict. And, and you all know it, right? If somebody is attacking your wife or children, you need to get into conflict there. You need to fight there. You need to put on the gloves and go to war there. But the kind of warfare that they were having in this church is the absolute wrong warfare. This was all about their internal desires, all about their preferences, all about dividing based on things that we shouldn't divide about. They're fighting for no good reason. And so Paul wants all of them to listen so there be no divisions. And he wants real unity. Now, that is to say... There is such a thing as fake unity, right? And fake unity almost always delays the conflict that needs to happen, and it makes a lot bigger conflict later, and it causes the people to suffer who shouldn't be suffering, and the people who should be suffering not to. Um, Another way to say it is Paul is going into conflict here, isn't he? Paul's fighting. Paul has put on the gloves here. And he wants to bring the conflict to the people who need it in order to shepherd and protect the people who are caught up in this mess. Correct? Let's take marriage for an example here. When parents fight, kids often get caught up in it, right? Happens all the time. Parents are warring. They're arguing about silly things. And sometimes the kids are caught up, especially when Uh, married couples are really going at it for a long time. The kids end up getting hurt, right? And so Paul is here kind of protecting the kids and bringing the fight to the parents. So Paul isn't here arguing for no conflict, no divisions at all. He he, he wants them to get over their silly things. Now Paul is writing this in verse 10 because he got a report from Chloe's people or from Chloe's household. And all the research I did, we really don't know much about Chloe. Paul names her 
probably because her name is Weighty. She's well known to this church, and she's an utterly trustworthy witness. And when Chloe's people uh, came to Paul, he heard a report that they love to quarrel. They're arguing and dividing based on silly things. And notice again that Paul, at the end of verse 11, refers to them as brothers again. Right? He is not doubting their sincerity in Christ. He is appealing to them based on our common uh, family relationship in Christ. And then in verse 12, Paul gives us one of the most egregious examples of how divided and quarrelsome and petty they are. Paul names four names here, himself, Apollos. If you remember, Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth. He planted the church. He pastored it. And then when he left, Apollos came in and was the pastor. So Apollo is Paul's successor here. And then Cephas, Peter, uh, I don't, we're not sure why he's named. He maybe spent some time in Corinth. He was a big name guy. And then Christ. And so what's happening here um, is that their root problem of divisiveness, of uh, arguing and quarreling and infighting, one of the examples of it, one of the most egregious examples are they're aligning themselves no longer primarily under Christ, but under these names of the big-time Christians of their day, right? They, they're, in a sense, they're giving more allegiance to Paul than they are to Christ, and it's causing divisions and bitterness and fighting in the church under the names of these men, which is a shame, isn't it? That's wicked, huh? And it isn't new. We've been doing this since then. We still do this. I don't think here Paul is getting, like, we, the, the application for us isn't, well, denominations are bad. Methodists who follow Wesley and Lutherans, who follow Luther and uh, Presbyterians who follow Knox and I don't know who we follow. Who do we follow? All right, come on. We're, we're better than them, right? <laughs> uh, honestly, this is so good. Uh, that's exactly what that last part is there. I follow Christ, right? Those aren't the good people. Those are the goody people. Those are the ones looking down on the ones following Paul and Apollos and Cephas. Oh, I follow Christ. <laughs> right? <laughs> They're the worst. <laughs> They're, nobody likes them. <laughs> uh, uh, so, but that's not the application is this denominational thing. could be. It's much more serious than that. Another way to say it is if you just give this to denominational things or to theological arguments, arguments of following the big theologians, that could be this. But this is much more personal than that. You could get yourself off the hook by looking at denominations. You get yourself off the hook by looking at theologians and say, I'm just not going to be a theologian then. That's not the point here. The point is that we are internally bent selfishly and we like to get our own way. That's why I talked about music in this way. So anyways, Paul responds to this wicked division that's showing up and they're dividing under people with three rhetorical questions that really uh, shame them, that really show how sinful and wicked their stuff is here. Is Christ divided? You hear that? you imagine Paul writing that to you? Come on. Is Christ divided? 
It's just showing them how petty and, and childish they're being. And then, was Paul crucified for you? Right? Right? You have more allegiance to me than you do to Christ. Was I crucified for you? And then, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? In a sense, they're shrugging off God's name and aligning themselves with the names of the people. And Paul's like, is Christ nothing to you anymore? Did I die for you? If you were baptized into my name, would that matter a whit? What's wrong with you? Do you not believe this gospel anymore? So they're dividing under the names of men, which means they're shrugging off, in a sense, the name of Christ. So Paul appeals to them in the name of Christ. Now before we get down deep into this divisiveness, which we need to do, I want you to consider the contrast between verses 4 to 9 and 10 to 13. If you remember back to last week's sermon, and you all remember last week's sermon, right? (laughs) Yeah. There was a sermon last week? Um, In verses 4 to 9, Paul is very grateful for the grace of God within them. I give thanks to my God always for you, for the grace of God that is within you, given you in Christ. He talks about their giftedness in Christ. He's very grateful for them. And so there's this truth in verses 4 to 9 that these Christians in Corinth are in Christ. That's the greatest truth, the most fundamental reality about them. They're Christians. They belong to Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 9 that they have fellowship with Jesus Christ our Lord. That's huge, isn't it? Don't take that for granted. Fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. They have this complete union, relationship, intimacy with Christ. And, they, and this relationship means that they're gifted, useful in the church. They are important in the church. They're needed in the church. And that's true of all of us. Don't lose sight of that. That's the truest thing about a Christian. And then, of course, we get into verses 10 to 13. We still wrestle with sin, don't we? We still, even though Christ has come and died and risen, even though he has defeated sin in our lives, we are no longer enslaved to sin, even though sin is no longer our master, you and I, until our death and Christ's coming, will still wrestle with internal corruption of our old man. And we still sin in grievous ways. I mean, we still sin in ways that really hurt people. And I just wanted to say, you know, welcome to you here. This is you, isn't it? You are in Christ. You are precious before the Father. You have been gifted and are useful and absolutely needed in this church. And you will still fail miserably before your Lord. You will disappoint people. You will sin against them and against God. And what do you expect from each other? If you expect anything else from other people, you have an unrealistic, unbiblical expectation, and you will hurt people with that. If you get involved in the life of this church and join a neighborhood small group and go all in, you will be very disappointed by people in that group because they'll sin against you. They might say something nasty about you behind your back. 
They might say that they'll do something and not follow through. And, and, and you'll do that too. And so this is us. This is, this is a Christian. Right? And so don't forget that. How can Paul in these very short verses say these two things together? Because they're true of us. <laughs> they're true of you. Now if you're not a Christian, this is not true of you. You are not in Christ. You have no fellowship with him, you have no eternal life. You are, in a very real way, not yet useful to God's people. You are not freed from sin. It is still your master. You cannot but do what your corrupt, deceitful desires do, and you know it. I knew it before I was a Christian. So I became a Christian, I realized I couldn't stop. I'd sin my way right to hell. And blame God for it. I don't bring that up to, you know, make you feel bad. I bring that up so that you might repent and turn to Christ. Because it is sweet. It is sweet. So I would urge you to repent and believe this gospel as these folks once did. So that, that, that's the biblical view of humanity. Now, God, as I said in the time of confession, we have two great commands, love God and love our neighbor, and these are intimately related. Our love for God is often mainly shown not in what we do for God, but in what we do for God's people. This is true throughout Scripture. When, when Jesus said, love the Lord God, our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, he wasn't giving you two separate commands that you, one you do over here and one you do over here. He was in essence saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind by loving my people. Right? That is, or as John says in 1 John, you can't say you love God and not serve his people. That's to be a liar. Because to love God means Loving his people. All right? So, we see that same sort of principle here in these verses. As these believers bickered at each other and maligned each other and divided with each other and looked down on each other in an ungodly way, Paul relates their sin against their brothers to how they relate to Christ. Their sin against each other is linked to what they say about Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. So we see this sin of divisiveness in verses 10, 11, and 12. Right? They're dividing, they're quarreling, they're aligning themselves under people and looking down on people, aligning themselves against others. And then in verse 13, Paul relates that to how they relate to Christ. Is Christ divided? That is, they can see their true uh, thinking about Christ in how they treat each other. You see that? Another way to say it is, if you came to this church in Corinth and said, give me your biblical understanding of who Jesus Christ is, they would, they would articulate it beautifully. 
They would say Jesus is the Son of God. He's eternal. He uh, took on flesh at one point, so he's fully God and fully man. And he died and rose again. Like Their doctrinal statement would be perfect. But functionally, what they believe about Jesus is shown more in how they treat Christ's people than in the doctrine that they can articulate. You get that? There was some disjuncture between what they believed about Jesus and what they functionally actually believed about him. And what they actually functionally believed about him was shown not in their doctrinal professions, but in their treatment of Christ's people. This is Christian maturity 101 here. Your relationship to Jesus is evidenced more by how you treat his people. Maturity isn't being able to give great doctrinal confessions, not being able to dot all of your doctrinal I's and cross all your doctrinal T's. It's how you love Christ's people. It's how you treat Christ's people. It's how you serve them. It's how you respond when they sin against you. You can write the greatest theological thing in the world and give a rip for God's people and you are as immature as a baby. That's Paul's point in this entire letter, by the way. This church sees themselves as the spiritual elite. They see themselves as the spiritual mature. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, right, that you've heard at weddings and all that, what he's saying to them is, he, he, he spells out this love thing, right? And he does it to say, and you're not this. You think you're so spiritually mature, so spiritually elite, and you are infants because you don't love, because you don't serve, because you divide and bicker and quarrel. So take that home with you, huh? How you treat each other at Pine Grove is the largest statement you make about what you believe about God. That's it. That's it. And think of that in two ways, huh? Sometimes you actively sin against people, right? You say things that are wrong and mean. Maybe you gossip about them behind their back. Right? Maybe you, as their child is squirming in the service, you give them the roll of the eye instead of a pleasing smile and offer to help. You can actively sin against people. But you could also not do anything for people too. You could not be of use in the church. You could withhold your time. You could withhold your giving. You could withhold your talents and abilities in using them to serve. And whether it's active sin or passivity, those things are a greater statement about what you believe about Jesus than actually what you say you believe about him. You can sit here and sing praise to God with full throat. and not do anything for any of God's people the rest of the week, and you're a hypocrite, right? That's what hypocrisy is. In the book of Isaiah, God indicts Israel because they are doing everything right in worship. They're singing, and they're praying, and they're fasting, and and yet bad things are happening to them, and they're complaining to God. God, we're, we're singing, and we're praying, and we're fasting, and we're giving money. Why are you against us? And God says, 
Because you treat each other so badly. You have hungry people and you don't feed them. You have sick people and you don't visit them. You have widows and you oppress them. You have orphans and you neglect them. You think what I want is singing? You think what I want is fasting? I want you to take care of my people. And he says, that is the true fasting I want. That's exactly what's going on here in Corinth. And these people are all right in worship, kind of, and all wrong in love with God's people. And it's seen mainly in this dividing under the name of these men in verse 12. I am of Paul. The word follow there isn't in the Greek. It's literally I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Jesus. Or I am of Christ. Right? Now, the, this isn't the issue in Corinth. This is an example of the issue. Internally, they love to fight. They're so proud. They're so internally bent on satisfying their own desires that they'll fight about anything. And one of the main things they're fighting about are the big-name personalities. Right? They want to be a part of the in-crowd. And some think Paul's the cool kid. Some think Apollos is the cool kid. Some think Peter is and everybody, well, some people think Jesus is. This happens in families, doesn't it? Sometimes moms and dads fight for the kids' allegiances to get them aligned underneath their kingdom, right? Sometimes parents pick favorites. The Bible is a litany of the terrors of parents picking favorites among their children, the destruction it wreaks. It's horrific. Read through Genesis through that lens once, and look what happens when parents pick favorites. You can do that in church. You can do that at work, right? You kind of subtly malign somebody to get people to think less of them so you can get be thought of more. Or you kind of brown nose the person that you think has the power that can really help you. That's just what's going on here. That's what's going on here. These kind of petty jealousies and rivalries that include little power struggles and lies and manipulations. I mean, don't you do that? Isn't that you? If you think this isn't you, either you're better than the rest of us or you're lying. This is you, isn't it? You subtly say things about people in order to make yourself look a little better than other people because you want to be a part of the it crowd. You want to be in it. I think we do this among friendships, at family, at work, school, church. I mean, you get amongst a bunch of junior high girls and you want to see them brutalize other girls. Oh, my goodness. I'm not saying boys don't do this too, but it's disgusting, isn't it? It's just internal sin. That's all that's going on here. And Paul wants them, because of the gospel, to, to lay it down. To just stop it. To, to be done with these kind of petty jealousies and rivalries and malicious slanders and all of it. And he wants you to look at this and say, yeah, th- this is me. <laughs> this is me. I do this. This gets at why James condemns the Christians for ignoring the widows and giving the rich uh, the front seats. Why are they doing that? Why are they dividing people like that? 
you know, they're greedy. They're internally allied more with money than with Christ. Right? Why do you give your attention to who you do in the church and not to others? What are you trying to get? That's what it's about, right? What am I trying to get? What do I want? What don't I have that I think I deserve? By the way, that's how our world runs right now, isn't it? Just this greed of trying to politically align ourselves with this group and not with this group or to divide classes and races in order to win politically. The gospel of Jesus Christ abhors that. Now, one of the tricky things with this sin of divisiveness is that we all agree it's sinful, but we hardly agree it's us or me. Let me put that in you terms. This sin is tricky because you agree that it's sinful. You can even agree that other people do it, but you'll hardly agree that you do it. Or if you do have this faint memory of a time that you might have gossiped, you'll come up with good reasons that it was okay for you to do it. You're so tricky with yourself. And it is really gross, this sin, isn't it? Look how Paul, look at these rhetorical questions. Look at what we do, what we communicate. We communicate that Christ is some kind of loony, divided person. When we align with people, we're actually putting hope in that person like we should have in Christ. We, we want them to be our functional gospel God, and they can't bear that weight. Now, this sin is, is hard not only because we will convince ourselves that we're not doing it, or we'll convince ourselves that we have done it, but it's okay because of these reasons, but it's also difficult to pin down because we often see this sin as one of those kind of respectable ones. These are the permitted kind of sins in the church. These are the nice sins. These aren't the really bad ones. These aren't the ones that you get looked down upon and shamed for. Right? You could have an unwed, pregnant woman here, and she'll feel the shame. And you could have a gossipy, malicious man, and he could be an elder. <laughs> Churches will make that guy an elder. And yet Paul spends an entire book on this sin and has harder language for this than just about anything else. You have to convince yourself not only that you do this, but that this is wicked. You have to convince yourself that this sin is not a good one, is not an okay one. It is a disgusting one. Don't let yourself wiggle off the hook here. You've you got to let yourself feel the weight and the shame of this, that you might stop it. When we deal in church ministry, let's say with marriages that are failing or in trouble, the issue almost always isn't one really big sin. The issue almost always is a thousand little ones, little cuts here little jabs there, little jealousies and divisiveness and quarrelsomeness that just never gets dealt with. And over 10, 15, 20 years, it becomes this pile, and, and then they just stop talking. They're just cold. They're just done. 
And the same thing can happen in churches. It can happen in families. Most parent-child relationships that fail and distant, it isn't one big event. There might be a big event at the end of it, but it's hundred little things that happen all throughout life. This little petty jealousy, fighting, just cutting stuff that never gets dealt with, never gets repented of, and it just piles up, and then something happens. They're just done. And it's all these little things. It's the little dishonesties. It's the little gossips. It's the little repeating of something that you've heard to somebody else. It's the little passing on of these juicy morsels. It's only spending time with the people in the church that are like you kind of stuff. And throughout the Bible, when you come up against these sins, they are dealt with directly. And one of the ways that you see this sin happen more than any other, and what Paul is dealing with, it's these kind of sins almost always go up the food chain authority. You know what I mean? So at work, you don't spend much time maligning and uh, gossiping about people underneath you. It's almost always up the food chain against your superior, your supervisor, your boss. Same thing in the church. Uh, one of the main things here is the Corinthians are totally maligning and undercutting Paul's authority. And after the sermon, they go out in the hallway and get in their little club afterwards and talk about him. Right? This is when you grab somebody's ear after the service and tell them what the pastor really should be saying or how wrong he is or whatever. And this sin is so pervasive, I just want, I want to urge you to identify it in your life, the little, the little ways you do this, and be done with it. Because is Christ divided? Do you really need the influence and attention and power of that person you're trying to align on? Did, did he die for you? Did she die? Didn't Christ die for you? Isn't that enough? Isn't that sufficient to free you from the idolatrous need to get this person and manipulate them to, to be on your side? It should be enough. So convince yourself of the sinfulness of this. How do you deal with it? There's a couple things here. Um, the first thing I would say is some of you will be entered into these kind of malicious, gossipy, divisive conversations innocently. You'll be in the hallway after church, maybe after a Bible study, get a phone call, Facebook post, and you're not asking for it, but somebody's bringing it to you. Right? Another case could be you're the kind of person that people seem to come with with their questions about what's going on at church. And you entertain it. You actually like it. Makes you feel important. If you're in that situation, the only way to stop it is to call it for what it is. You have to say, have you said to me, to that person, what you're saying to me now? If not, would you go say it to them or we can go do it together, right? If you just want to be done with this gossipy, malicious, slandering kind of junk band thing that's just so subtle and little, you have to put a stop. You've got to walk away from it. Second, if you're the one actively doing it, you need to quit it 
It is wrong. It is evil. It is wicked. It is telling a lie about the gospel. It is, it is sick. So you, you have to identify it and be done with it. But secondly, you just have to look to the gospel. Look what Paul does. Christ is not divided. He did die for you. You are baptized into his name. You have his name. You don't need people like that. You don't need to be enslaved to what people think. You don't need their power or their authority or their money or their approval or their affection like you do Christ. Now, you do need people's help, of course. You do need affection from people, but not in this idolatrous way that would cause you to do little lies and little manipulations and little slanders in order to manipulate you into getting what you want out of them. You don't need it because you have Christ. You don't need it because Christ was crucified for you. He is your Lord. You don't need any others. So you need the gospel here is what you need. And what is the gospel? Well, we see it in these rhetorical questions again. We see it throughout this text. Jesus Christ is our Lord. We are brothers under him. He is not divided. He is eternally one, and he actually was crucified for you. And you, when you were baptized, were baptized into his name. You now bear his name. And so let's treat each other like that. Let's pray. Father, this is difficult because this is us. And we want to come to you here with our sin in this area. Ask you to forgive us and free us from it. That we might tell the truth of who Christ is that we might see the sufficiency of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And so, God, please work that in us. Help us to be attentive to this in our own lives. Help us to see it for what it is, confess it and move on from it, and treat each other as we are, brothers, sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ. And help us to do it for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name.